0: If they are, in fact, failing conventional ventilation, there's a level of control which you can't really trust their body to do. If you could have trusted it, you would have found it by now. You wouldn't be asking this question at this point.
1: Welcome back to Pete's Grit. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas.
2: And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C.,
1: Today, we're excited to have Dr. Nader Yeya back with us today. This is part three of our conversation on advanced ARDS.
2: Yes. And today, we're going to be talking about what you reach for when your conventional ventilation is not adequately oxygenating and ventilating the patient. Really a fantastic conversation.
1: That's right. Certainly a high-risk scenario that we find ourselves not too uncommonly in the pediatric ICU. So let's give this a listen. All right, so our six-year-old patient with polyviral and superimposed bacterial pneumonia was intubated, was initially managed on PRVC, mode of mechanical ventilation, had escalating peak pressures despite six per kilo tidal volume, was transitioned over to pressure control, and ultimately is having worsening respiratory failure uh, with high PaCO2s, low pHs, and and hypoxemia on 80 to 90% oxygen. The bedside team is worried that this patient is failing conventional modes of mechanical ventilation, and we need to start thinking what we're going to do next.
0: Okay. Absolutely.
2: We'd love to hear your perspective of who's really the ideal patient for each of these modes. And so we've got NAVA or Neurally Adjusted Ventillary Assist. We've got the oscillator, high-frequency percussive ventilation, high-frequency jet ventilation, and then APRV. It's sort of a menu of options here.
0: Absolutely. We're just going to assume that the patient's paralyzed and has either contraindicated to proning or failed proning, and your institution doesn't use nitric in ARDS, okay? Because, like, um, medication adjuncts are also an option here, okay? Because they tend not to require, like, a change in equipment, which makes people happy. So I'm going to say off the bat that, like, I don't believe that in our understanding of NAVA right now that it is a good salvage mode for oxygenation failure, And for a lot of ARDS, I actually worry that Nava's Nava's appropriate place is actually more with like non-invasive synchrony in neuromuscular kids or in BPD kids or in the weaning phase. It can actually speed up weaning and like improve reconditioning. But I worry that like if you're that sick, then the mental model of trying to synchronize better is coming up into competition with the fact that this patient's body may not know what it's doing. And like you're trying to synchronize with something that... ARDS patients, if they're inflamed and they're acutely inflamed and they're hot, okay, and they have a bunch of dyspnea from like a bunch of misfiring J-fibers and irritant fibers and things like that, like the mere fact that you're synchronizing with this tachypnea is not going to make that tachypnea better. All right. Like they are not dyspnea because you have the wrong ventilator setting. They're dyspnea because they have ARDS. And I worry that NAVA and modes like that are insensitive to that problem this is in fact part of the logic of paralysis okay and if part of the logic of paralysis is to like actually remove their dyspnea as a contributor to unintentional ventilator-induced lung injury or if you believe in self-inflicted lung injury the negative pressure deflection the double triggering and those things that give you unanticipated high volumes and things like that if you want to remove that from then then nava like cannot be thought of in the same mode because that's an orthogonal thought process right where in like you know better synchrony Okay, that's offered by like diaphragm, electrical activity versus like, no, their body is just wrong. Take them out. Those are opposite thoughts. And I think a lot of like ARDS management, this ends up being that if they are in fact failing conventional ventilation, there's a level of control, which you can't really trust their body to do. If you could have trusted it, you would have found it by now. You wouldn't be asking this question at this point. All of the other modes have a level of escalation that's associated with them. Okay. With varying degrees of taking them out of the equation. So APRV, I think of as primarily an oxygenation rescue. Jet and high-frequency percussive ventilation, I think of primarily as ventilatory rescues. High-frequency percussive ventilation, because of its percussive properties, I think of also as a secretion rescue. And the oscillator can do everything. But it's probably a little bit better at oxygenation. Okay? So that's my short-term answer. Okay? Like oxygenation, APRV, then oscillator. Ventilation, high-frequency percussive, then potentially oscillator. Jet, some caveats, APRV, some caveats. All right. APRV has the advantage of having a patient still be spontaneously breathing. The logic behind it is that this patient's ventilator settings are going up, their peak pressures and their hypoxema are going up because their lungs are so stiff that every time they try to recruit with a peak pressure of 35 or 40, they immediately lose everything at the peep of 15 or 16. But if I kept them open at a 35 or 40 for longer, okay, then I could potentially keep that lung open, but just my eye time is too short because I have to breathe 30 times a minute, okay? So I can only set my eye time to one to 1.5 seconds or something like that. But that's not long enough. These are like really socked in units that just need a lot of pressure to re-recruit, okay? And so what if I set my eye time longer? So now what you're saying is like, instead of, pips of forty over like a PEV of twenty or something like that. What if I set my P high at thirty? Like a number I'm okay with, a number I'm comfortable with, and I just leave them at 30, instead of like an I time of one point one to one point five seconds, what if I leave that I time for like five seconds? In five seconds at a pressure of thirty, can I open up that long? Okay. And in fact, many times you can. Okay. Like many times like you actually can recruit, okay, at a sustained high CPAP, what you cannot do is get CO two out of the system. So periodically, you're going to have to dump the CO2 out. That's APRV. Extreme IDE inversion, okay, with periodic dumps to facilitate CO2 removal and prolonged eye times to facilitate recruitment with an advantage of improved VQ matching. Because when you're ventilating supine, okay, and all of your blood is in your back and all of your more compliant areas where your air tends to go is anterior, then you've induced a VQ mismatch. What APRV does with spontaneously breathing is like, what if the areas that are socked in, if I gave you an eye time at a pressure of 30 for five seconds, what if I can open those areas up? And because I left you spontaneously breathing and my diaphragm is working, my diaphragm is preferentially trying to open up those socked in areas that won't open at a pressure of 30 for one second, but will open at a pressure of 30 for five seconds. Now you've actually recreated a VQ match. Now you're ventilating the areas that are being best perfused, so you should improve your FiO2. That is the logic of APRV. To do that, you need somebody you're willing to leave spontaneously ventilating, not paralyzed, and somebody who like can tolerate spontaneously breathing without losing your own marbles as a provider. Let me explain this. If we have an intubated teenager and we set the respiratory rate to 30 and they breathe 30 on APRV, then we're fine with that. If we have a bronchiolytic on BIPAP and they're breathing at a rate of 60, we're fine with that. When we intubate that bronchiolytic and their rate goes down to 30, we think that like, okay, that's what should happen when you're intubated. But when you lighten up a infant with ARDS on APRV, they will breathe at a rate of 50 or 60. That does not mean they're failing APRV. It does get interpreted very often as them failing APRV because people are not used to seeing this degree of tachypnea on intubated infants. Okay. Whereas we tolerate that same doubling of normal respiratory rate on intubated teenagers on APRV all the time. Okay. So look at your heart rate, look at your FI2s. If the baby's actually full on freaking out and you can't reason with them because they're a baby, don't do it. APRV only works if you're actually syncing with it and you're comfortable on it and you're actually not dysknic on APRV. And in fairness, babies and toddlers are very unreasonable. I have two of them Super unreasonable. (laughs) All right. Like you can't talk them into something they didn't talk themselves into. If they're not happy breathing on APRV, then don't do APRV. Teenagers you can oftentimes redirect and engage with in a way that makes people more comfortable, but don't give me the reasons to tachypnea, please. The same twice normal respiratory rate that you tolerate on a teenager, you should be comfortable with on a toddler, okay? And just be aware that that's going to happen by design because that's how APRV is working. APRV is working with spontaneous ventilation, prolonged eye times in order to improve VQ matching and recruit stacked up lung in the back, okay, with periodic dumps. And it works better by them spontaneously (laughs) breathing. but it only works if they're comfortably spontaneously breathing. So that's the kind of patient I think works on APRV. Some patients are so stiff that they will de-recruit on any low pressure, whether that low pressure is the APRV dump or whether that low pressure is the peep on conventional ventilation. If your lungs are so rock that they cannot tolerate a high and a low pressure, then you just need one sustained mean airway pressure, which is the same logic that I said about the APRV and the eye time. Okay, at five seconds, now the oscillator will take that I time to infinity. Okay, because on the oscillator you set a true mean airway pressure with infinite I time. The IDE ratio that you set on the oscillator is for the oscillation. Okay, and that oscillation determines how fast the drum is beating back and forth. Okay, and inhaling, exhaling, but the sustained mean airway pressure is what drives the pendulum of like slow eventual recruitment. Of rock-like lung behavior, that is effectively an infinite eye time. So much like I said earlier, you can keep somebody on CPAP on an FiO2 and you can oxygenate fine. What you cannot do is ventilate. APRV solves that by spontaneously breathing in periodic CO2 dumps. The oscillator solves that by high frequency. In that sense, the oscillator with its infinite eye time is the best recruitment maneuver you have. It's a sustained, prolonged, increased pressure at a pressure that you're probably comfortable with. In that 30 to 35 range, instead of pips of 40 to 50, right? So that's what the oscillator is for. It's a rescue for oxygenation in that sense, in that it's like a prolonged eye time. You can ventilate with the oscillator, okay? Because when you're recruited on the oscillator, that's to say you're like good seven, eight ribs expanded, you can somewhat disassociate the mean airway pressure FiO2 part from the power amplitude and the Hertz part. But the downside of the oscillator is all that sustained mean airway pressure tends to push secretions to the periphery. So pulmonary toilet is somewhat sacrificed on the oscillator. And cardiovascularly, there's nothing quite as toxic to the right ventricle as a sustained mean airway pressure. Right ventricle is kind of like it when you have a high and a low pressure. And then finally, the sedation paralysis requirements of the oscillator tend to be higher because it's a very weird mode of ventilation. And so it's not particularly well tolerated, and the patient's typically sick enough that it ends up needing some degree of sedation and paralysis. And so for sedation paralysis, hemodynamics, and pulmonary toilet, the oscillator ends up having a few risks associated with that as well. That being said, its recruitment properties are second to none. If your lung is open up a bowl by a machine, this is the one to do it, because this is a sustained recruitment maneuver. And so none of the other ventilator modes offer that just one pressure for a long time. And if that's what your lung needs, then your lung will respond to that, then that's what the oscillator will give you. And so the patient for that is somebody who's either failed APRV or somebody who you think, based on your assessment on conventional ventilation, just has such stiff lungs that they would not tolerate any low pressure, including an APRV dump switching gears a little bit to ventilatory failure. Okay. You can have machines like high frequency percussive ventilation and jet ventilation. So jet is well described and well understood in the neonatal ICU. And it was designed essentially to have the super shortest eye time, some ridiculous, like 0.2 or 0.02 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whatever the brochure says, but it's a fixed short eye time of like little bursts. And what that does is that it gives you like a very long E time. So IDE ratios in the one to six range, you know, and so the purpose of that was pulmonary interstitial emphysema, and a lot of neonatal obstructive processes, you can leverage that in pediatrics as a CO2 rescue by the same logic of like adequate oxygenation, but prolonged exhalation for air trapping problems. A lot of people have found, like, some practical limitations of the JET in terms of, like, again, needing sedation process and, like, not doing anything for secretions and also, like, having a little bit of a functional weight limit. JET has been described in older teenagers and adults, but by and large, a lot of people run into a limit at around 25, 30 kilos. And, like, they have not seen it effectively ventilate quite as well as it should in a smaller kid as it does in, like, bigger kids. And so sometimes that ends up being a problem with the JET. The JET also doesn't do anything for the actual thing causing the obstruction. And so there's a final concern that if your obstruction is being caused by, like, secretions from bronchiolitis, which is very common, then, like, the jet isn't doing anything for that, and you're still, like, having to suction, break the seal, and things like that to, like, actually get at the underlying problem. So in some institutions, things that people would have used the jet for, or even ECMO for, they've substituted high-frequency percussive ventilation. So high-frequency percussive ventilation puts a percussor, a high-frequency percussor, essentially in line with bi-level ventilation. And the percussion is not an oscillator. And because it has a high and a low pressure, and because it percusses, okay, then two things happen. One, the percussion is effectively internal chest PT that breaks up secretions. And two, the high frequency nature of the gas delivery actually leverages the CO2 removal that the oscillator uses for high frequency ventilation. And so you can actually remove CO2 with the high frequency percussion component of the high frequency percussive ventilation. So if you have somebody who has adequate oxygenation, like in the, you know, maybe 50 to 60% range, but maybe not in the 90% range, but has a huge CO2 problem, or if you have an ARDS that is contaminant with like a ton of secretions, like an aspiration or a really bad pneumonia, or a bronchiolitis that's gone bad, blown up worse than standard bronchiolitis, or a super infected bronchiolitis, then you could invoke high frequency percussive ventilation as a way to get rid of secretions as well as adequately oxygenate and really get rid of the CO2. Okay, so in that sense, the high frequency percussive ventilation candidate is somebody who has hypercarbia, okay, and especially if they have a concurrent secretion burden, remember that the oscillator okay, was the exact opposite. It opens up your lung at the expense of secretions, okay? Like, it just pushes all that stuff to the side so that at a mean airway pressure of 30, the oscillator is keeping your lung open. But as you start weaning the oscillator and you get down to mean airway pressure of 25, all those secretions are going to flood the center of the airways. And now you're going to have to either suction them out or go back up on your oscillator settings because you're like, I can't seem to wean below 25. And that's why. It's because like all that crap that you've like pushed out to the periphery, is now coming back to haunt you on the weaning side because it hasn't been resorbed yet by the body. Whereas high-frequency percussive ventilation, okay, has been trying to, like, actually break those secretions up and allow them to be suctionable, okay? And because it has a high and low pressure, it's tolerant of you breaking the circuit to suction. So to recap that, APRV, keep spontaneously breathing, tolerate comfortable tachypnea if needed. It allows better VQ matching at prolonged eye times. The oscillator, infinite eye time, great oxygenation rescue, comes at the expense of hemodynamics, potentially blood pressure, and increased sedation paralysis. All right. JET may have some practical size limitations, was really designed for neonatal PIE, but will work to move CO2, but doesn't do anything for secretions. High frequency percussion when your ERDS has a significant hypercarbia and secretion component. That's how I think about those four. Nice. And Nava, I don't think of acutely. I think that when you're reaching for these other modes, my own bias is to take the patient out of the equation.
2: Something I want to highlight—that's such a small point in such a large knowledge base about these systems—is you have ARDS, you know that your J fibers are being affected, and you can expect this really out of proportion to your ventilation to I can just picture a woman I took care of with a MRSA pneumonia who was just like miserable, right?
0: Yeah. That's not that you're on the wrong settings. That's just ARDS. Yeah. And like a lot of the paralysis trials actually came from this, like this observation of like, is there effort that we somehow can't stay ahead of with sedation? Would it benefit from paralysis? The entire logic of the Cisatricurium trials kind of came from these observations and the double triggering and the dyspnea on different invasive and non-invasive modes. It's all parcel of what's happening in ARDS. And so sometimes like you're dealing with a patient, you know, and certainly some dyspnea can be caused by you're on the wrong settings. But oh, definitely. part of this is just what it is. We tolerate tachypnea and bronchiolitis, and we just say it's bronchiolitis. Same thing's happening in other disease processes.
1: Sure. And we'll get to many of these adjunctum strategies really soon. Maybe a bit more pragmatic question before we move along is, if this six-year-old patient with pneumonia with suspected or at least deemed to be refractory ARDS to conventional modes of ventilation is at the chop you, what are they likely advancing to?
0: That six-year-old would likely advance to the oscillator with an attempt to re-recruit with infinite eye time with a call out to our ECMO specialists if the patient was an ECMO candidate that there's somebody going on to the oscillator. And if this patient fails the oscillator, that they should be aware that there could be an ECMO cannulation for VV ECMO for ARDS. If the patient had significant shock, I think most of us would still probably try the oscillator first. We would just be willing to go up and tolerate some of the hemodynamic instability with the oscillator and add another presser. If we thought this patient with pneumonia had a significant secretion burden, I suspect that the way you're painting this picture of primarily a hypoxemia, we would probably skip the high-frequency percussive ventilator, go straight to the oscillator, and then on the back end, if we were able to wean from ECMO or the oscillator, we would then down-transition them to VDR to get rid of those secretions that we ignored earlier. But in the acute term, if you're describing primarily a hypoxemic respiratory failure, for a refractory ARDS, we would probably go to the oscillator and then ECMO.
1: Yeah, that's interesting to hear. I mean, very similar, probably what we would do at our institution. Alice, would you say your program would do something much different than that?
2: Nitric proning APRV before he was paralyzed.
1: And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcasts at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.